Good morning. Certainly good to be with you again on this fifth Sunday. I appreciate very much the opportunity to be back at South Edmonton. Andor and I send our love to each and every one of you. And we hope and pray that all is well with you and your family in this time of such a trying situation for our lives. For over 1,500 years, Western civilization accepted the truth of the Bible. But then the theory of evolution came along, and liberal theology, theology came along, and modern archaeology with its biased interpretations came along, and now skepticism and disbelief is rampant in our society. It's rampant in our schools, our universities, our colleges. It is rampant from our national leaders all the way down to the people on the street. And it has even infiltrated many of our churches. Are the stories in the Bible really true? Did God Almighty really create the heavens and the earth? Did He scoop out the rivers and the lakes and the oceans? and fill them with water? Did He put the sun, the moon, and the stars where they are? Did He put the flowers in the field and the trees in the forest? Did He put the fish in the sea, the fowls in the air, and man on the earth? Did He put the animals on the land? Did He create His masterpiece, man, and put Him here in the world which He created? And did man sin and separate himself from God? Did God raise up the nation of Israel and from that nation raise up Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ create and institute His church, His eternal kingdom in order to bring redemption, in order to bring reconciliation and renewal to a lost and dying humanity? Did these things really happen? Did these biblical stories really take place? Or are they simply based upon myth, on legend, and on man-made tradition? Is there any evidence outside of the Bible that supports these stories as being true? We must answer with a resounding yes. We must answer with an absolute affirmative. These things did happen, and today I would like for us to consider evidence that tells us that they happened in just one particular segment of biblical history. I want us to consider a long thread of evidence concerning the nation of Israel and how it matches the historical narrative of the Bible based upon archaeology, based upon geography, and on long-standing tradition. That thread of evidence covers approximately 480 years of history. From the time that God made His promise to Abraham, all the way to the time that the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan. Why Abraham? Why did God raise up this man named Abraham? Because God created man, placed him in a garden of paradise, and man turned that garden of paradise into a wilderness. 
God created man, placed him in a world that he intended to be a theater of his glory, and man turned that theater into a world of shame and wickedness. God created man in his own image. But man wasn't satisfied to be in the image of God. He wanted to be God. Man rebelled. And therefore, God raised up one man, the man Abraham, and made it possible through this one man, Abraham, for the human family to make that long trek back home to the God who created him. What did God promise Abraham? He promised Abraham a people, a land, and a law. He promised Abraham a nation, and that through this nation, all other nations of the world would be blessed. Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. Your name is Abram, which means exalted father. Genesis 17, 5. But from now on, your name will be Abraham, which means exalted father of a multitude. God promised Abraham a large multi-ethnic family. It would start out in the Hebrews and later would include the Gentiles after Jesus Christ came into our world. How did God work all of this out? He called Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldeans sent him into a land, the land of Canaan, showed him the land, and told him, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And while Abraham was in that land, he had two sons, Isaac and Jacob. You know the story. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons. And those 12 sons later, of course, represent and became the 12 tribes of Israel. They are the ones who will inherit the promised land. And through the providence of God, they're going to be welded into a people, a large number of people. But it's going to happen outside of the land of Canaan, and then they will come back to the land. They're going to end up in Egypt. And it's there in Egypt that they will become a mighty nation and then come back to Canaan's land. That's promised in Genesis chapter 15, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for a certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated for many years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to this land, for the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. Now God accomplished all of that. He accomplished that promise through primarily one of Jacob's sons, his favorite son, Joseph. You know the story. Joseph was just a boy. He was only 17 years old. And the favored son that Jacob gave the multicolored coat. And he had these dreams that his brothers would come bending to him and they became very jealous of him and they sold him into Egypt. They got rid of him. Sold him to the Ishmaelites, a caravan of Midianites heading to Egypt. 
And that's where Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house. And his Potiphar's wife tempted him. He met the temptation, left leaving his cloak in her hands. Hell hath no fury like a scorned woman. And he, she lies about him and he ends up in Potiphar's prison. And later becomes in charge of that prison, interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's uh, butler and, and cupbearer. And later Pharaoh has a dream, you remember, and doesn't understand the dream, learns about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams well, calls him out of prison, and Joseph tells him there's going to be seven years. Your dream means this. There's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And it's going to be a time of disaster if you don't prepare for it. What do you suggest we do? Pharaoh said. I suggest that you store up grain for seven years during the time of plenty and then you will be prepared for the seven years of famine. And that's precisely what they did. And in the process, Joseph is made prime minister over all of Egypt. Genesis 41, 40 and following. And he sets forth a famine policy that when the seven years of abundance is finished, then they will sell the grain. It's not a dole system. They're not going to give it away. They're going to sell it. And that makes Pharaoh rich because all the money goes right back to Pharaoh. The question was asked, an archaeologist by the name of Brad Wood, is there anything in Egyptian history that supports that story of the Bible? And he said, absolutely. He tells us of a time in Egyptian history in the Middle Kingdom at this very time when the land was divided into gnomes. And each one of those districts had leaders who were very wealthy and powerful. But then he said, all of a sudden, that changed. All of a sudden, the wealth and the power left those individual leaders in these individual districts and was concentrated on one man, and that is the Pharaoh. He said, that is due, we believe, to the famine policy set forth by Joseph. During this same time, there was a canal developed alongside of the Nile that ran parallel to the Nile River, the longest river in the world and the longest river in Africa. This canal ran for a hundred miles and emptied into a large lake, a sump. They were able during the time of, and before the time of famine, to siphon off 50% of the water and store that water to prepare for that time of famine. You know what the name of the canal is? Bar Yusuf. And it means the waterway of Joseph. The waterway of Joseph. That canal is still there and functioning to this very day. That tells us that Joseph was in the land of Egypt. It tells us that God's footprints in time are all over the land of Egypt. And we're going to see that as we progress in this study this morning. Ultimately, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt. 
They come there to purchase grain. And later the entire family with their father Jacob move there and they settle in the land of Goshen, which becomes the city of Avaris. The city of Avaris, that ancient city, one of the largest cities in the world it, it became at that time, made up of Semitic people from the Canaanite area, believed by many Egyptologists to be the city of the Israelites in Egypt where they multiplied. One particular Egyptologist and historian by the name of David Roll was asked, is there any evidence of these people being Israelites, Semitic people? And he said, absolutely. He said in the very beginning, according to archaeology and what has been uncovered and excavated, 70 to 100 people from the land of Canaan had moved there and lived in about 15 houses. One of them was a Assyrian-style house, the kind Abraham would have lived in. This small number of people developed into a huge population of Semitic people, Asiatics. The graves are Canaanite graves. And they are Canaanite-style burials, not Egyptian. The tools we found there, the weapons and the pottery, belonged to Canaanites. A palace was uncovered belonging to a Semitic ruler who was in favor with the Egyptians. We know that this palace had colonnades. This palace had 12 pillars. We believe those 12 pillars represent the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, Joseph being one of them. Outside of Joseph's palace, they uncovered 12 graves. On top of the ground, there were memorials for these graves, believed to be the 12 graves of the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel in Egypt, in Avaris, this ancient city. One particular tomb had over it a pyramid-type memorial. And inside, they had placed a statue of a Semitic ruler who had on him a multi-colored coat. That's in the ground, brethren. That's been uncovered, brethren. What does that say to us? It tells us that Joseph was in Egypt and that he was the ruler of Egypt the prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. What else was, identifies this as being Joseph's tomb? There are no bones in the tomb. And we know why. Because those bones were carried back to Canaan by God's people after he died. So the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph, they both were buried in Canaan, the promised land. Jacob's bones, Jacob's body was carried back to the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, and Joseph's were carried and buried in Shechem. Now after Joseph's death, the Israelites continued to multiply. 
A Pharaoh arises who is unaware of what Egypt owes to this Hebrew prime minister by the name of Joseph. And therefore, out of fear, because of the Israelites becoming so numerous, out of fear, he institutes a policy of ethnic cleansing and slave labor. And archaeology shows that the Semitic people living in the area at that time, 25 to 30,000 just in that one place alone, but thousands of others living in other areas of Egypt, they were all placed under slavery. They started out in prosperity and they reached a time where there was a lack of prosperity and they started dying between the ages of 32 and 34. And uh, David Rowe, one of the Egyptologists, states, we believe this to be due to the slavery. Now, there's been a recreation of the city of Avaris. And uh, the recreation shows some Egyptian headquarters, some white buildings surrounded by the mud brick crammed together buildings, houses which belong to the Hebrew people. And that tells us that the Israelites were not isolated all to themselves, that there was also an Egyptian palace there, an Egyptian headquarters there, right next to one of the, one of the tributaries of the Nile River. What about the Hebrew male children who were not drowned in the Nile? Is there any evidence in archaeology telling us that that happened? Yes. We see that there was a burial of infants that jumped from 25% suddenly to 50%. And most of them died within three months of their birth. The Brooklyn Papyrus in the Brooklyn Museum in New York has a slave list of a hundred people, a hundred slaves. Seventy percent of them have Hebrew names. This is a slave list from this particular time in Egypt's history. And did you know that two of those names on the slave list was Iskar and Asher? That's the name of two of Jacob's sons. We don't know if that, for sure if, if those were Jacob's sons, but they have the same names as the two sons of Jacob, Ishkar and Asher, found on a slave list called the Brooklyn Papyrus, which is in the museum in New York. That is history, brethren. The names of Jacob's sons, also Menahem, Shapira, a Hebrew midwife, are listed on that slave list. That is Egyptian history, and it also comes straight out of the Bible. And then, of course, we have the birth of Moses. In 1526 B.C., we know he was hidden in a basket. He floated down toward the Egyptian palace, and he was recovered and raised by the Egyptians. He grew up, saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew, and he slew the Egyptian, buried him in the sand, and out of fear, he runs to Median out of the country into Saudi Arabia and stays there for 40 years taking care of Jethro's sheep. He marries one of Jethro's daughters, Zipporah, and he takes care of those dirty, smelly sheep 
for 40 years around Mount Sinai, the mountain of God that His people will later return to. 40 years later, God appears to him in a burning bush. Tells him to take the shoes off his feet. He said, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to go to my, to my people. Tell them I'm going to deliver them. You go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Who am I to say sent me? I am that I am. Tell them that. Tell them that I am has sent you. I am today. I was yesterday. I will be tomorrow. I've always existed. That's the God who sent Him back to Egypt. And we know that when He went to Pharaoh, who is this God, He said, that I should let His people go? Well, He's about to find out. He's about to find out through ten plagues. I mean, God had to break His back. He was a stubborn man. A man filled with pride. A powerful, rich man. But he had placed God's people under slavery. And God is about to break His stubborn heart with plagues. And finally, when He sends the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, He breaks His stubborn heart. And He lets God's people go. The death of every firstborn son in Egypt. God finally got tired of their lies. He got tired of their worshiping false gods. He got tired of the tyranny exercised over His people. And there was great wailing, therefore, throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as never been before. Death filled the entire land. Is there any evidence of the sudden death of Egypt's firstborn. Yes, they discovered many, many burial pits where Egyptians were not buried in a normal, formal manner. They were thrown into pits, many of them together, legs crossing one another, arms crossing one another. They had to bury them quickly, and it's believed that they were buried in that way because they had to keep from contaminating the living population at Avaris. Part of the Egyptian army lived there. And that's what they found in the ground. And then we have the Ipurwer papyrus in, in Holland that goes back to the Middle Kingdom written by a scribe by the name of Ipurwer. And he makes a list of devastating plagues that hit Egypt and every one of them sound like they came straight out of the Bible. So there's more evidence of God's judgment coming on the Egyptians. And then we have the abandonment of Avaris and Cahun, a city also south of there, that all of a sudden these places are abandoned. That's what we learn from archaeology. All of a sudden these Semitic people, the Israelite people, all of a sudden they're gone overnight, leaving everything in place, leaving tools and toys, and household goods, right where they left them. And the people are gone. They are gone for good, overnight. Does that sound like the Bible to you? And then people say that the Bible is a myth? They say the Bible is just legend? Away with such lies. 
And they are led across the Arabian, Arabian desert by God Himself to Saudi Arabia. And Moses would have taken them around the tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. But God tells him, turn back. I want you to turn back. Take my people down and camp next to the Gulf. Camp next to the sea. Yamsuth. It's called Red Sea in the Bible. Really, that's not a good translation. I'm sure the translators added Red Sea because of the bodies of water south of the Gulf of Aqaba. But the Gulf of Aqaba was originally named by Moses. And he called it Yamsuth. Yam means sea, and Suth means the ending. It was the ending of the border of the promised land that God told him about. There's only one body of water that was ever called Yamsuth. And it's not the Suez, and it's not those little rinky dink puddles of water up there that many of them claim they crossed in a natural way. No, one body of water was called Yamsuth, and that's the Gulf of Aqaba. The deep waters of the Gulf of Aqaba. Many of those waters are 6,000 feet deep. Right there off of, off of a campsite, a beach called Nueva Beach, there's a place that goes right across the center for 10 miles into Saudi Arabia that's more shallow, has a gentle slope on both sides, and they have found wreckage on both sides. They found chariot wheels. They found bones. And they have found evidence of Pharaoh's army being drowned in that water. For over 20 years, people from three continents have been going to this area of the Gulf of Aqaba searching for evidence of the Red Sea miracle, and they found plenty of it. As I said, wreckage on both sides. Josephus says that there was an additional 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 infantrymen who were destroyed in the Red Sea. Egypt collapsed. And they collapsed because of the plagues and because of God's judgment on Pharaoh. They lost their agriculture and crops. They lost their firstborn sons. They lost all their silver and gold, Exodus 11.2. They lost their slave force and they lost their army in the Red Sea. Did you know that shortly after the Exodus in 1446 B.C. that we read in Egyptian history that the Egyptian civilization collapsed? That there's this very dark period of time from between 2000 B.C. and 1000 B.C. Around 1446 B.C. it was a period of dark collapse. That's history. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us. Listen to this. If you don't hear anything else I've said today, listen to this. An Egyptian priest by the name of Mothatheo, who wrote of the history of Egypt, made the following statement. And here it is. I quote, In the reign of a king, a pharaoh called Dudamos, in the 13th dynasty, God smote the Egyptians. He didn't say God uh, smote the Egyptians. 
He said God smote the Egyptians. You remember where God told them again and again, and then they shall know that I am the Lord? Then they shall know that I am God? You know, compensation is a fundamental law of life. Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged. For whatever judgments you deal out and whatever measure you deal out to others and however you treat others, it's going to come back to you. It's going to be turned on your own head. That's Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Israel was God's firstborn. Exodus 4, 22. Israel was God's firstborn. And as Egypt had treated God's firstborn killing the babies, putting them under slavery. So God treated Egypt's firstborn. They were slaughtered on Passover night. All of Egypt's firstborn. And Egypt had held back Israel's wages. And now Israel departs with back pay, taking Egypt's silver and gold. Pharaoh drowned the Jewish babies in the Nile. And God will drown, now drown Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Nobody gets away with anything. I'm sure you will agree that you and I are living in a time when we have lost much of our freedom. We are slowly losing our freedom. And now it looks like we're going to rapidly lose much of our freedom. Even the freedom to talk, our freedom of speech. And you have to be careful what you say. And brethren, the time is quickly coming when the government, is government under which we live is going to be telling us what we can preach and what we cannot preach from this pulpit. And that should concern us. And we need to remember, therefore, that God's judgment on Pharaoh has a message for the world at large. The God of all the earth hates oppression. He punishes oppressors. And He takes note of the weeping of the poor and the exploited, and He will right all wrongs. Israel's God is the God of all humans. And He is opposed to all tormentors and tyrannical governments, and they are His enemies. And they will not get away with it forever. There is a message of assurance here for all who suffer under tyranny of any sort. And there's another message. And that is just as Israel passed through the water, leaving the old world to the new, the old life to the new, a life of bondage to a life of freedom as they passed through the waters of the Red Sea, baptized unto Moses. So you and I, under Jesus Christ, we experience a similar exodus as we pass from an old life to a new life, as we're baptized in the waters of baptism and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Romans 6 and verse 4. They come to some Mount Sinai and that mountain is in Jabal, is Jabal El Laws in Saudi Arabia. There's evidence at the base of that mountain that God's people were there. There, there are altars there, still there. There are petroglyphs on the side of those altars. Egyptian cows and bulls that have been engraved into the 
to the rocks around the, the altars. It comes only from Egypt. They are Egyptian petroglyphs of Egyptian cows and bulls. Nowhere else in Saudi Arabia do you find that. But you find it at the base of Jabal el Laws in Saudi Arabia, which is the mountain of God. In fact, the Saudis who have lived there for years call it the mountain of Moses. And that's long-standing tradition. And did you know that many of our American pilots during World War II were told by the Saudis, don't fly over that mountain? Why? Because it's the mountain of God. You fly around it. One particular old pilot not too many years ago was being interviewed, and he said, you bet I flew around it. We know where that mountain is. And it's not in, in the Sinai Peninsula on your maps in the, at the end of your Bible. It's in Saudi Arabia. That's where Paul said that the mountain of God is in Saudi Arabia. Galatians 4 and verse 25. There's a cave on the mountain where Elijah went. There's a huge cleft rock on the top of that mountain where Moses was hidden by God. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. All the evidence is there. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. I realize I'm preaching a little longer than usual. I'm about finished here. I'm on page 11 and I've got 12 pages. This is so important. The conquest of the promised land. Joshua is the new leader. Moses dies. And God tells Joshua, you're going to take the city of Jericho and I'll be with you. They cross over the Jordan River. Joshua, just to make sure, when he saw this man with a a sword, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Himself, I'm sure. And Joshua said to him, whose side are you on? And he said, neither. Neither. He said, I am commander of the army. I am the commander in chief. Joshua 5 verse 14. I'm not on either side. Because you see, I'm not an Israelite, and I'm not a Canaanite, and I'm not an American. I'm not a Republican, and I'm not a Democrat. I'm God. And if you want life, you'll have to line up and follow me. They took the land. And did you know that archaeology tells us in 1406 B.C. they have uncovered the walls of Jericho that fell beneath themselves. The top wall being 25 foot thick or 25 foot high and 10 foot thick fell down against a retaining wall. It's all there in the ground. We know about Rahab's house where the spies were hidden. And you have the houses right next to the wall on the north gate. And the city burned. That's right there in the ground. Telling us that God's story is true. They took he, the city. They uncovered that. They uncovered the burned city of Hazar north of there. That Joshua also put to sword. And he put a king to sword at Hazar by the name of Jabin. 
You read that in your Bible. Look that up, J-A-B-I-N, Jabin, the king of Hazor. That's in your Bible. But now listen to this. When they uncovered the city of Hazar through archaeology and excavation, they dug this tablet out of the ground that had the name of a king on it. Jabin. Jabin. That is history. When you take a name out of the ground, you have history. They go to Shechem. After all of this is over, they erect a large covenant stone and Joshua's altar. That's still there today as well. The people of Israel, Romans 9, 4. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenants, the covenant that God made through Abraham and Moses and David. The receiving of the law at Mount Sinai. The temple worship that was received at Mount Sinai. And all the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Jesus Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. That's what Paul had to say about it in Romans chapter 9, 4-5. When you have a long pattern of evidence, you have history. History that matches Bible history. History that matches God's history. History that matches God's story. And whatever you might end up questioning, whatever you might end up doubting, don't doubt for one moment God's story. Casting doubt on any part of God's story is casting doubt on the eternal purposes of God and casting doubt on God Himself. And disbelief, that kind of disbelief, is a hostile act toward God Himself. Follow Him. Love Him. Believe in Him. And you will have life and you will have peace in believing. Thank you.